This is Matt Pennington with Radio Free Asia. Welcome to our podcast, Eyes on Asia, where we look each week at some of the key stories in the region as covered by RFA. I'm joined by Paul Eckert, who heads up RFA's English Language Service. How are you doing, Paul? I'm doing great, Matt. Thanks. Now, oftentimes, this podcast deals with weighty and frankly disturbing subject matter, like state oppression, serious human rights abuses, things like that. But this week, it's not all doom and gloom. I'll be taking a musical interlude, albeit one related to the grim politics of Cambodia. How about you, Paul? Who will you be speaking to? I'll be talking to Eset Suleiman, a member of our Uyghur service who has a handful of his family members in the camps that we write about day in and day out. RFA's Uyghur coverage is a jewel in RFA's crown, so I'm looking forward to that and hearing about Eset's experiences and reflections. But first, we turn our ears to Southeast Asia and melodic sounds of Cambodia. That was a song performed by a Cambodian refugee. Growing numbers of opposition supporters and other activists are fleeing to neighboring Thailand as Prime Minister Hun Sen tightens his grip over Cambodia. Some of them are now turning to music to speak out on issues of politics, human rights and the environment that are sensitive back home and can land you in prison. To tell me about this, I'm joined by the face of RFA Khmer, that's Vuti Huat. Welcome, Vuti. Thank you for having me, and I'm very happy to be able to join the program with you again. Great to have you. So, Vuti, can you tell me a little bit about that song that we just heard on the introduction? I understand that it's actually a response to a song that was promoted by Hun Sen himself. Yes, you know, that song, it was a composed new r- lyric by Prime Minister Hun Sen uh, to uh, an old uh, music, and it's about two wild animals cry out to each other, and uh, but he uh, composed that song to make fun of Sam Rang Si, who planned to return to Cambodia, as you remember, on November 9, 2019. And he make fun that you will never be able to uh, come to Cambodia. You uh, can only cry from a distance from other country and stuff like that. So this song, uh, now this song is in response, of course, to uh, Hun Sen's uh, lyric and saying that it's you who is afraid of Samring Si, who wants Samring Si, who accuse Samring Si for being traitor and stuff. But you uh, close the border, you cut the bridge. Uh, not to let uh, Samring Si return to Cambodia. Okay, and it's quite a funny song. Yes, a very funny song. Hun Sen, I mean, uh, he even ordered during the Khmer New Year last April, he ordered every TV station, radio station to play that song, and he ordered all the uh, people in Cambodia to sing and dance uh, to that song. Okay, so this is a sort of song in response that's being promoted by Sam Ranzi's uh, CNRP party. Now, I understand that you've interviewed some of the people who are creating these political and human rights songs. Can you just tell me a little bit about their background and, you know, who they are and why they left Cambodia? 
Jesma, the people who create these songs are Cambodian refugees living in various countries in Southeast Asian nations, mainly in Thailand, uh, Malaysia, and the Philippines. They fled Cambodia uh, to escape the persecution by the Cambodian government. These people are political activists, some are young people, or former university students, NGO workers, but actively uh, participate in the campaign to raise awareness about environmental issues. Some are social media personality who use a, a social media platform to post and share unfiltered and a real event that uh, take place in their community inside the country. They, of course, have been made the enemy of the state by the authority, I mean by the Hun Sen government. Okay. So can you go into a bit more detail about the sort of topics they sing about? These songs actually cover a wide range of some burning uh, topics such as fighting against corruptions, uh, human rights abuse, environmental destructions, call for social justice. Some lyrics even directly criticize Prime Minister Hun Sen for leading the country into disaster and call people to rise up against his uh, leadership. Now I just want to uh, play a short segment of another song that's sung by a young a Cambodian environmentalist. The message is to appeal to Cambodians inside the country to rise up and protest against the plan of Prime Minister Hun Sen to sell uh, an island called Kokong Krau Island to his friend, his rich friend, to develop into a, a resort and chase away the local community. So, Vuti, are these original songs or is it new lyrics put to old songs? They are mostly new lyrics put into old songs. These days, people uh, produce karaoke where you can uh, separate music track from a vocal track. So they just use the uh, music track from existing songs and put new lyric to it. As I mentioned earlier, these people are refugees. They don't have much material. They don't have means, but they have strong will and commitment. They mainly use uh, iPhone, iPad to produce this song. And they share this song online. They play them on uh, their online TV called Sun TV. I should also uh, mention here, Matt, that even if these refugees sing this song from outside the country, the content uh, of this song do not necessarily represent the voice of the refugees, but they actually reflect the voice of the people living inside the country who dare not express their discontent for fear of uh, persecution from the authority. It is the Cambodian people living inside the country who composed the lyric and sent them to this refugee to execute. I see. And it's published on Sun TV, which is the YouTube channel of Sam Renzi's party, the CNRP. Is that right? Uh, yes, correct, man. And it seems like the quality is actually very good. They might just be using iPhones and stuff, but the audio is very good and they're, and they're good singers too. When when you have strong will and you have commitment, you find a way to do it. Seems right. that way. 
So can you tell me, you know, a bit about the background of how people use music and songs in Cambodia for political purposes and, you know, for protest songs? Is there a tradition like that? Yes, Matt. Actually, this is a very popular medium of expressing critic or negative aspect in the Cambodian society. Many writers and artists have written comic books and songs addressing these issues. And uh, Prime Minister Hun Sen is very well aware of this. He takes full advantage of this by corrupting and turning some famous singer, writer, even comedian to sing and make jokes uh, to praise him and his uh, family. He used pop culture, songs and comedy as a propaganda. And of course, he's threatening those who refuse to give in. Okay, so this is kind of like the opposition hitting back in the culture wars. So is it dangerous for people to sing political songs inside Cambodia these days? Very, very dangerous, man. If you remember last December, I think if I'm uh, not mistaken, on December the 22nd, uh, 2020, the Cambodian court has convicted two rappers for incitement for writing lyrics that reference social justice and the loss of a Cambodian territory to Vietnam, a Cambodian neighboring country, a young man named Kia Sakun, uh, age 23, and another young man, age only 18, uh, was sentenced to one year and a half and five months in prison, uh, uh, respectively. Kia Sakun uh, was given a harsher sentence because he refused to express remorse for his action, whereas uh, Putira apologized to the court. During the trial, Kia Sukun, the 23-year-old uh, rapper, refused to plead guilty and said that he had nothing to do or nothing to apologize for. On the other hand, the 18-year-old Putira admitted to the court that it was a mistake uh, to release song on uh, social issues. He therefore was sentenced to only five months in uh, prison. Their song entitled Khmer Land and uh, uh, Sad Race have more than two million views on, uh, on YouTube. The lyric of their uh, two rap song uh, criticize prime minister's government for leading Cambodia into an economic decline and urge people to stand up against uh, oppression and corruption. Okay, we can just listen to a little bit of, of one of their songs. <laughs> I mean, it's very sad how, you know, these musicians, these young rappers were, were sentenced, given this harsh jail term just for singing and, and doing a bit of social commentary to music. Let's listen to one more of the songs from the refugees as, as we end this segment. And Vuti, can you tell me what this song is about? This next song is about the Friday wife. This wife, wife of some political and environmental activists who have been arrested, tortured and jailed by the Cambodian authority for incitement. Uh, charges, again, after uh, expressing their view critical to Prime Minister Hun Sen's leadership. The Y uh, have held weekly demonstrations 
every Friday, I mean, in the in Phnom Penh, the capital city of Cambodia, demanding that their husband be freed. So the song lyric uh, represent the, the voices of the Friday wife. They praise their husband for standing up against the oppression and sacrifice their freedoms and their life for uh, social justice and for proper uh, development of Cambodia. Okay, thank you, Vuti, for uh, speaking with us and telling us about these political songs. My pleasure, Matt. Thanks to Vudi and Matt for that look at the musical activism of opponents of Cambodian Prime Minister Hun Sen. Now we turn our attention further north to the plight of the Uyghurs in China's far west. That's a territory served by the RFA Uyghur Language Service, which has been at the forefront of investigative reporting on Chinese abuses, such as its notorious internment camps and the policies of cultural assimilation. My guest is a distinguished member of that RFA team. Eset Suleiman has been an editor at RFA's Uyghur service since 2013, five years after he left his homeland, where he had built a decade-long career as a professor at the School of Humanities at Xinjiang University. Between his teaching career in Xinjiang and his editing job in Washington, he worked several years in Germany and Sweden as a research fellow. Journalists, of course, dream of getting scoops and exclusives, but the latest scoop by RFA's Uyghur service early this month was in fact a personal nightmare for Esset and his family. Through the reporting of colleagues on the Uyghur team, RFA learned that two of Esset's brothers were detained three years ago, and at least five cousins have gone missing. Esset's older brother, Ehet, 57, and an education official in Kumul Prefecture in the east of Xinjiang, and his younger brother, Emmet, a 39-year-old head of a local government there in Kumul, have both been in custody since 2018. The brothers and cousins are the latest of more than 50 relatives of RFA Uyghur staff who have been confirmed held in Chinese state detention, either in prisons or in the now notorious detention camps. In all of this reporting about the abuses in the XUAR, did you have a fear that this kind of thing could happen to your family? Thank you for asking these questions. I became a member of RFA in 2013. Since then, as I broadcast every day, I uh, make a news report and call the Uyghur region. So during this, uh, this call, I confirmed so many cases. Uh, some people arrested, some people is uh, detained for different uh, reasons. That time, I feel this kind of events coming to the whole Uyghur community whole Uyghur uh, nation. But at last, this kind of tragedy happened to your family, uh, your heart broken, and uh, it is very, very painful experience. 2018, I only know my two brothers and the two sisters uh, taken to the camps. But uh, after four years, uh, recently, RFA Uyghur service uh, confirmed that both my brothers taken by the Chinese uh, National Security Police. And we asked the reason, but the police and the local government staff said this is only the state secret. So this time uh, they, uh, they are not at the camps because the Chinese National Security Police as usual taken by some of the political person. So I feel uh, they are somewhere in the prison, but I don't, uh, I don't know. Uh, right now, 
uh, my family, my two brothers, and uh, my five cousins uh, at the Chinese prisons. Among them, four of my cousins sentenced 17 years prison. This event uh, just confirmed by the Uyghur service recently. So I read the story and we translated and we put it out in English. And it's just, it's shocking and it's heartbreaking, like you say. I've been working at RFA myself for six years and the Uyghur stories have getting sadder and sadder. Yeah. I want to step back in history because you and your brothers all had nice, professional, respectable careers back in Xinjiang when you were younger. Uh, you were an academic, a professor, and your other brother was also involved in education, and one was an administrator in the local, in their hometown area. When did things really start to get bad for Uyghurs? Well, for my personal experience in the 1980s, just after the Cultural Revolution, is that this time for the Chinese citizens, not only Han Chinese, it is also the Uyghurs, Tibetans, Mongols, and other ethnic minorities. Because in that time, the ethnic minorities enjoy some degree of autonomy. Just at that time, I entered the Xinjiang uh, University, Urumqi, and studied five years. And we can talk anything about the Uyghur culture, literature, Uyghur language, story, anything. Uh, we enjoy the academic uh, atmosphere at the university. And in uh, 1991, I finished uh, the university and uh, I stay at the university, became a teacher and then studied uh, graduate school. So I, uh, at that time, I never imagined the situation will uh, worse. But in the end of the 1990s, the everything starts to change. I am studying at uh, Beijing, the Chinese Academy for Social Science uh, for the PhD degree uh, during 1996 to 1999. Just after I come back from Beijing to Urumqi, I felt that uh, our university academic atmosphere is uh, totally changed because at that time, the authorities required all the educations uh, must be uh, teach in Han Chinese, not Uyghur. Because before that, we all uh, teaching in Uyghur language, we write paper in Uyghur, in Uyghur and the published Uyghur journalists, uh, both uh, in Uyghur and Han Chinese. It is okay everywhere. But uh, that year, the authorities pressure that the university, the Uyghur university teacher and the other ethnic minority teacher must pass HSK, uh, it is Han Chinese uh, level test. It's eighth grade. Three teachers must be passed this exam. It is a very difficult exam, and I also attend this test and pass the test. And then the Uyghur teachers is qualified to teaching the students. From that year, I give up uh, the Uyghur language and uh, start to teaching in Chinese for the Uyghur students. But wow. The Uyghur students cannot understand Chinese very well. It's very, very difficult for us. Uh, university authorities also required uh, from that, that day, we cannot publish the, in Uyghur language uh, article, academic papers, or book. Uh, they not calculate this is uh, the academic results. The only if you published in Han Chinese, it is calculate your result in the end of the year. But in Uyghur, it is not. 
So it's a very, very difficult situation. Uh, that mm. time uh, I uh, feel for the first time that the situation changed totally. And another example is the New Year festival in 2001. At that time, you know the September 11 attack, uh, terrorist attack to U US and the China yes. started to campaign uh, for the so-called uh, terrorism. Just at the New, New Year festival 2001, uh, one of the concert nights uh, organized in Urumqi, one of the Uyghur artists, Nurmanmet Tambur, and his sister, very famous singer, Sanobar Tursun, they have the one concert night. And I also bought the ticket and I also attend this, uh, this nights. In that nights, one of the Uyghur poet uh, recite one uh, Uyghur poem. This poem, I think it is not a political, it's ordinary, ordinary poem. But the second day, the authorities leave. Uh, this is some kind of separatism. After one week, our university authorities call me because they know uh, who is attend this night. Uh, there is a camera, uh, they recognize everyone. And they ask me and interrogate, why do you attend this night? Because I don't know, it is very uh, normal uh, uh, concert nights. I like the Uyghur uh, traditional songs and the music, so I attend. That year, uh, the winter uh, vacation, all the Xinjiang University teachers is organized the political studies. We cannot uh, back to home almost 20 days. They also name it so-called anti-separatism movement in ideological field. Wow. Boy, yeah. that's really, that's really heavy-handed for what was basically a cultural event yes, to yes. celebrate the holiday. So, but during this 20 days, the Xinjiang University teacher, all the Uyghur teacher write some political investigation, 10 years teaching books, and all the Uyghur language publications, including the papers, articles, books, the checks, the Xinjiang University organized investigation team, most of them the Han Chinese and some of the Uyghurs, and they check our teaching books and our teaching contents our papers, our materials, all of that. So at that time, I am very, very fear uh, this situation because my three books published uh, in Xinjiang uh, Publishing House, this books uh, relates on the Uyghur history, culture, and uh, literature. So some kind of the fearful feeling coming every the Uyghur teacher and other ethnic minorities teachers in Xinjiang University. Today, I remember that these two things, it is my personal experience that the Chinese action, Chinese policy in the Uyghur region, uh, in the ethnic minorities, is starts change. I mean, that I learned a lot just uh, from your personal account because we have since been reporting on the arrest of senior editors at the Xinjiang Publishing House, for example, all of the academics, all of the intellectuals. A lot of our stories, a lot of the scoops that you get out of the region involve famous Uyghur cultural or academic or intellectual figures being sent to jail or to the camps. Yes. Uh, all of the reporting that uh, RFA Uyghur has done, and we've translated into English, has helped raise worldwide awareness to very high levels when it comes to the Uyghur situation. That was not always the case. 15, 20 years ago, people didn't know a lot about yeah. uh, that region and the troubles that you were under. So now that the Uyghur situation has 
a strong part of the international spotlight. What are people in your situation, I mean, not an RFA journalist, editor, but more Uyghurs like you with family members missing, incarcerated, what are you hoping for from the international community going forward? Yeah, this kind of tragedy not only happens uh, on my family, on RFA Uyghur service members' family. Every Uyghur, uh, Uyghurs outside of China, they facing this tragedy because uh, every family, some people missing, some people detained, some people prisoned. We all facing this kind of uh, tragedy. So, you know, the China now is the number two power in the world. So as an ethnic minority under the Chinese rule, we have no any choice. We only hope that if the international community, the human rights organization and the Western countries government, if they take some kind of declaration or some kind of action and give the Chinese authorities, give the pressure, maybe this is our one kind of hope, our hope, because the Uyghurs is a voiceless people uh, in the China. The Chinese Communist Party controls all the media, uh, so we, we have no voice. So under this uh, difficult situation, our only hope is international community's effort. Thanks to Paul and Esad for that fascinating and poignant look at how Chinese policies have upended the lives of Uyghurs, including many of RFA's own, like I said. He also provided some great historical context for us, Paul, on the genesis of some of those oppressive policies. Yeah, I thought, you know, you can read the reports from the United Nation and read the reports that we put out and hear various angry denunciations of China, but there's nothing like actually finding out what it means to people on the ground and how this disaster got going. RFA staffers, RFA Uyghur staffers can provide incredible insight. I mean, not just on the personal plight of their relatives now, but looking back on what's happened over the last 20, 30 years. Please join us again next week. Until then, you can read RFA coverage on our website, rfa.org. Our past podcasts are at that site or on other platforms like Spotify and iTunes. Just search for Eyes on Asia. If you have any feedback or suggestions, please drop us a line or attach an audio message. Our email is eoa at rfa.org. It stands for Eyes on Asia. I'm Matt Pennington with Paul Eckert at Radio Free Asia. This podcast series is created by Leo Kim and produced by Radio Free Asia. Thank you for listening and please join us again 